All right, are we, uh, we ready to go there? All right, good morning everyone. Welcome back to our study of Revelation. Let's begin with an invocation. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right. We have, we have finished chapter 14, which means we have finished uh, the interregnum. You know, so much of this is, is semantic and conceptual, but if you think about the, the body of the document, then the interregnum is the third of four major parts. You could arguably tack on an introduction and a conclusion at the end, and um, then you have, a, you have a pretty simple but a pretty good outline for uh, what you find in Revelation. And again, it's cyclical. It's not that we don't experience new things. Of course we do. But we're covering the same period of time with each one of these chapters or cycles, if you will. And so the interregnum, for example, begins with the woman who gives birth. That's the incarnation. That's the birth of Christ. And it ends with the end of the world. And so, so here we are again with another set of seven, and it's that same period of time from the Christ event, roughly the coming of Christ, uh, to the end of the world. And so, so that's what we're going to see in uh, 15. Pardon me while I try ineffectively to multitask here and steer to Brighton on 15, so I can point out some things that he has to say. All right. Now, what we're going to see with the seven angels and the seven plagues is we're going to see a continued emphasis. We, we saw this in the seven trumpets, a continued emphasis on the Exodus motif, really even a deepening as, as Revelation comes to its conclusion, especially the parts of judgment come to their conclusion, a deepening of the Exodus motif. Uh, so you're going to see, even in your header there, the seven angels with the seven plagues. And what we'll see, for example, in uh, chapter 15 of Revelation, so those of you just came in, chapter 15, um, what we'll see in, in verse 3 is that uh, they're singing the song of Moses. So the Exodus motif is thoroughly in the background. And of course, we know with John's rich sacramental theology, not only in his gospel, but of course also in his epistles, and then heretofore in Revelation, the Exodus motif fits that so well. We've already been playing around with these thoughts of like baptism and anti-baptism, being marked with the name of the Father and the Son on your forehead versus being marked with the name of the beast, baptism and anti-baptism. We've been talking in the way of uh, the Holy Communion and the anti-communion, um, the, the receiving of the cup of salvation being the true communion, the anti-communion being either drinking the cup of God's wrath or drinking the cup of sexual immorality uh, given by this, um, by this female figure who we're going, to, we're going to learn more about here in a moment. Okay, so we've been, in other words, John has been showing us very, very rich in some sense, subtle, because he's not spelling it out, you know, 
Lutheranism 101 style. <laughs> it's, it, the themes are woven and woven deep into the text and uh, really are only drawn out by meditating on the text. So we're going to see that continue in the Exodus. But the Exodus, of course, the foundational part of the Exodus um, it, are, are really two events uh, that form the foundation of the Exodus. Uh, the first, chronologically speaking, is the Passover, the slaying of the lamb, the eating of its flesh, and the putting its blood outside of the house, upon the house, uh, thus barring the angel of death. And then, that being the, the tenth and final plague, then, then that leads right into the Red Sea crossing, going through the Red Sea. So, so that theme of eating the lamb, Passover, and passing through the waters, the Red Sea crossing, the Exodus, um, those, those are sacramental themes, richly, deeply sacramental themes um, that are taken up in the New Testament as sacramental themes. And so, so we want to have that in the back of our mind, too, as we move into this next section. All right, we've seen the opening of the seven seals. We've seen the seven trumpets. Now on to the seven plagues. Chapter 15, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. Now, we have seen a sea of glass previously. Do you recall when? This is such beautiful imagery if you're picturing this in your eyes. If you go back to chapter 4, go back to chapter 4, and uh, for, the, for the sake of it, just pick up at, pick up at verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Ah, so a sea of glass like crystal. Here, here, in John's initial vision, the sea of glass is, no doubt about it, awesome and mind-blowing, but it is, a, it is a symbol of peace. It is a symbol of peace. But now look what's happening. Chapter 15, verse 2, after being told this is the end and this is the final, and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. It's as if the wrath of the one sitting on the throne is, has now burned so hot that the sea of glass around him is burning with fire. It's really incredible. You could make, you could make such an impactful movie scene of that, couldn't you? Flashback to when it's tranquil and awesome, and now it's foreboding bubbling with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, 
standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. All right. So, once more, we are drawn back into the throne room, which, again, makes perfect sense if the throne room of God is the hub of revelation, and we're going off on these various adventures, we're always coming back to the throne room. And then what comes next flows from the throne room. So, no different here. Likewise, what we see is that the, the judgment of God and the finality of God's judgment upon the earth are part of the cosmic heavenly liturgy. They're almost even, almost even byproducts of the cosmic heavenly liturgy. Um, they're an aspect or a component of it is what I really mean. And how so? Well, of course, you have the sea of glass mingled with fire. We know who is sitting in the midst of that on the throne, the Lamb, the sevenfold spirit. And um, then we have those who have conquered the beast and the image and the number of his name. That goes back early. And um, we, we, of course, conquer the dragon by the blood of the Lamb and by the witness of testimony. Okay. So by... by uh, you could even say by word and sacrament, we conquer uh, the dragon. And then here we are depicted, we saints are depicted as those who have conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name. So everything, everything that the beast of the earth, everything that false religion and religious tyranny could throw at us, we conquered because upon us was written the name of the Lamb and the name of the one who sits on the throne. So here we conquer, and the image, the image is through baptism, through the baptismal reality. Of course, of course, on the one hand, it is completely monergistic, because it is God who writes his name upon us. It is God who calls us to faith. It is God who saves us. But on the other hand, we need not shy away from the active language here on the part of human beings, because God so loves us that he makes us participants in it. He causes us to conquer so that, is it all God, I mean, is it to God be all the glory? Yes, but it is also me, it is also you who conquer, okay? 
So it's not as if we're just passive. It's not, and, and it's not as if we're just, you know, kind of milk toast along for the ride. Um, we, are, we are active. And you can see that in the language of those who had conquered the beast and the image and the number of its name. And that, that unfolds the promise I was talking about earlier, how those things that were our shame, you know, sin, death, and the devil, those are the very things we conquer. And we conquer the beast through the mark of, of the lamb and through faith in the lamb. And so, so we conquer him. So all those things that we repent of and we consider our great shame and we're ashamed of and we're disturbed by and we, we wish we were through with them, all those things are the things we conquer through faith in the Lamb, through baptism. And so God has this wonderful way of transforming our shame into glory, our loss into victory, our Good Friday into Easter. It's all that motif. We're being formed into the image of Christ. Okay, now this, this great crowd of saints is standing around the, the sea of glass with harps, and we heard back in chapter 4 who else is there. So this is the whole company of heaven. Only now we are singing the song of Moses. Okay. So Moses, the great deliverer of God's people, God's people were enslaved by Pharaoh, and Moses delivered them. God's people are enslaved by Satan, and Jesus delivers us. You see the direct parallel. This is, this is such a big deal, biblically, it can, hardly be, uh, it can hardly be overstated. The salvific event of the Old Testament is, is the exodus, is God saving the people from slavery, making them his own people. And that has its, that has its parallel in the New Testament. For example, when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, he's talking with Elijah and Moses we talked about them possibly being the two witnesses of chapter 11. But when he's speaking with them on the Mount of Transfiguration, Luke tells us that they are discussing, they are talking about his exodus, Jesus' exodus. So the exodus of the Old Testament is really a foreshadowing and foretelling of the greater exodus of the New Testament, which turns out to be an exodus out of this fallen cosmos. And we are, I mean, this is really our place in this, this frame of thinking, this, these lenses that Revelation would put on our eyes, is we are, we are sojourners here. We are, in a sense, in a sense, I think strict, strictly to this aspect of Revelation, we ought to envision ourselves as being in Egypt, but Moses, that is Christ, has come and we know that the plagues are going to come and then we're going to be set free. So we're, we're waiting and, and it, indeed, I would say, experiencing the plagues. So, so then look at how that transforms the way you see plagues. Because if you see plagues, you know that salvation is coming. First the plagues, then the release. That's why Jesus says when you see all these things happening... Lift up your heads. Your redemption draws near. Don't, don't get depressed. Don't cower. Um, you know, every, everything that you have here is actually just a kind of slavery akin to what they had in Egypt. Okay? We're being set free to something greater and something better. So the point then of Revelation is as we see these angels loose their plagues, our thoughts shouldn't be, oh, no. Our thoughts should be like, yes, this is the last thing before we're set free, before we follow our Lord Jesus 
out from this slavery, out from this Egypt into the true promised land. And the true promised land, as we're going to see in Revelation, the new heavens and the new earth. The new heavens and the new earth. The resurrection of our bodies. Okay? We, as God made us to be, but like more ourselves than ever before. And for the first time, ourselves as God truly intended us to be. I cannot even describe to you, you ought to think on this, like how wonderful it will be to actually be you without sin. To be you the way God made you. To be you without temptation. To be you without a, a, a thought that you have to second guess. Or a word that you have to regret. Or a deed done or left undone. You without any of that, completely and totally free to simply be, and to be is to be righteous, and everything you think, say, or do will be righteous. And what glorious, wonderful freedom. We'll hardly even know ourselves. We'll hardly, we'll hardly even, I mean, just that alone, just the joy of being, as God has created us to be. That, that's what's coming, and that's just a foretaste. That's just like the, I mean, that's just like the tiniest little speck, because that's just you and me in this whole brand new cosmos, a new heavens and a new earth where everything is going to be made new, everything is going to be made righteous. Um, and, and again, the, the source and center, that, that which permeates all of it and makes it truly, truly the promised land is the presence of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, to enjoy them forever along with the whole family of God's saints and angels of every kind. All right, so that's where we're going, that's where we're journeying, and that's what uh, Revelation is setting before us. So again, the point of Revelation isn't, oh, freak out, oh, doom and gloom, oh, get out your newspaper and worry about what's coming next. That's practically the opposite of what Revelation's for. Revelation is for giving you a frame of reference, for giving you lenses with which to see, so that even when all these things are happening, you can see what God's intent is and where we are in the story and where he's taking us. Make sense? All right. Did I see a hand in the back? We're okay? All right. All right. So, again, this is why you have the song of Moses and the saints singing this. All right. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Um, And again, all of this, all of this is not only the song of Moses, but the song of the Lamb. Okay, our true Moses, our true Moses. Sometimes we as Lutherans do a disservice or, um, when we think of Moses only in juxtaposition with Christ, only in contrast to Christ. Moses, the lawgiver, Christ, the giver of grace. This section, and I would argue many other sections, don't put forward a contrast between Moses and Jesus, but put forward a continuity a homogeny between Moses and Jesus. This is the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. All right, now, things to point out. Obviously, we see that he is just. We see that he's true. We see that he's everything an earthly king (laughs) has never been. But we also see that he is the king of the nations. So the kingship, I mean, again, if you think about this, of course, this isn't all that amazing to us. We're used to this way of thinking. But if you put this in first century context, he has been the king of the Jews, the king of, um, God, uh, of God's chosen people, Israel. He is the king of the nations, and that's being published uh, wide. Part of the reason why we just assume that and see it as a, well, duh, is because of texts like this that have taught us. All right, so he is the king of the nations. And of course, everyone will fear 
and glorify his name. His salvation here is depicted as cosmic in scope, which the Bible so frequently does. That's not universalism. It's just to say anyone who this doesn't describe is already gone. I mean, in this sense, you can even use, you can even use the motif of being dead in our trespasses. If we remain dead in our trespasses, we don't even exist. We're not even part of creation proper. And so those who reject Christ, those who remain dead in their trespasses, they don't have any part. And so you can have all these universal-type statements be absolutely true. All right, then you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, and your righteous acts have been revealed. And that, too, then all of salvation climaxes in joining in the heavenly and cosmic liturgy that is ongoing, that has been going on from the dawn of creation when the angels were singing as God created, uh, up into the very present. Um, it, is the, it is the liturgy of the cosmos of which we get to be um, part. All right, and then your righteous acts have been revealed. Um, and, and I don't think it's a stretch there at all that the righteous acts that have especially been revealed is the salvation of sinners. Our rescue from those principalities and powers who have oppressed us and who are stronger than us. And so the righteous acts are his acts of mercy, his acts whereby he makes us righteous. I don't think it's a stretch at all to see that there in this last line. Then, as we read, out of the sanctuary of the tent. So we are told in the Old Testament that the tabernacle and later the temple are structured after the heavenly reality. Um, Hebrews does this. And so we are glimpsing the heavenly reality of the, the sanctuary of the tent of witness, um, where God dwells in heaven. And out of the sanctuary then um, come the seven angels with the seven plagues. They're, pure, they're clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. Now this is a very interesting description because the only other description we've had like this goes all the way back to chapter 1 with the description of Christ as the Son of Man. He is described as having a, a long robe, a long white robe, and a golden sash around his chest. So I think what is, this is, this is the Lord in glory being represented here by these seven angels. And indicative of their representing him is their attire, white robes and uh, golden sashes. You can see here, too, um, you know, it's tangential to be sure, but you can see rationale for why many, many centuries and in many, many locales across the globe, uh, the church has insisted that pastors be clothed in white robes and even from time to time in sashes or stoles. The point being a visual reminder uh, to the people and to the man who's in the office that, hey, buddy, you're not there to be, you know, you. We're not here for your wit and wisdom. We're here so that you will do unto us the words and deeds of Christ. And the same way that these angels are in the office of Christ, the pastor is in the office of Christ. And so there's no glory that goes to him individually, merely to the office. So we, we clothe him in order to remind him of that and remind us of that, the people of that. So... You can see that, um, that tangent here, if you like. 
Verse 7, then, um, one of the four living creatures, of course, we, we spent quite a bit of time with them in chapter 4, where we were given detailed description, uh, gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God. I mean, you can, you can picture the, you can picture the, the altar is the, and we've seen this altar before, it's the incense altar, there's coals, you put incense onto the coals and it burns. We've been told that these are the prayers of the saints previously, that's the imagery that's been used. And here what's implied is that the, this, um, this living creature, one of the four, grabs these, these bowls f- full of hot coals from the incense altar and hands them off to the seven angels. So the sanctuary is filled with smoke from the stirring up of the coals and the incense. And this is called from the glory of God and from his power. So the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. So you can see how all these images, the human earthly images of what would have happened concretely, and then these supernatural images um, blend in one, very much like Isaiah 6 and the theophany there where... um, where Isaiah is in the throne room and he, and he sees the smoke rising and he, and he sees the robe of God sitting upon the throne, etc. The, the, sort of like what's concrete and can be seen with the eye um, and what can only be seen by the revelation of God blurred together. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So they're, they're a statement of the finality of God's glory and God's wrath Um, chapter 16 verse 1 then I heard a loud voice from the temple note note how the the tent of witness and the temple are simply used interchangeably telling the seven angels go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God so the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And of course, that makes, that makes sense because we last saw the, the beast coming out of the earth. So the earth is a, the second beast coming out of the earth. So that second beast is here addressed. Harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Now, note what happens here. In the same way that the... Uh, in Egypt, the plagues, by and large, afflicted only the Egyptians, not the Israelites. That, too, is being imaged here. So you see that the sores come upon the people um, who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image, not upon Christians. So what ought we take from that? That this isn't like a literal type of thing. You know, it's, it's not likely the case that if you've got your LCMS membership card in your pocket, you've got no sores. But, um, or if you've got your, you know, your Christian card in your pocket, you've got no sores, but everyone else in the world has sores. Um, not likely to be the case. Likely this is indicative of a kind of spiritual punishment. But we leave that open to interpretation ultimately. All right, if the first goes for the earth, what's the second going to go for? The sea, 
And so we see it. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea. That's where the first beast had come from. And it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. Now both of these, the sores and the water turning into blood, we have, uh, we have seen in, a, in the Exodus, right? The sores, the, the boils, and then also the blood. So we're still well within the Exodus motif here. And so, again, just existentially, we're seeing the world be afflicted supernaturally, and our response to this should be rejoicing. Um, with these afflictions, there, there is something to keep in mind, too. There's this aspect of things, that whatever the afflictions are, they may, they may yet affect Christians in terms of property, they may yet affect Christians in terms of body, but the words of Christ ring loud and true. Though you die, yet shall you live, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. And so there's, there's this sense in which a Christian is more than the body, and a Christian is more than his stuff on earth. And so even if the stuff on earth, and even if the body is afflicted and perishes, the Christian remains unharmed as such. Um, no different than the Son of God remains the Son of God, even though he suffers as a sinner and suffers the full wrath of God on the cross. He remains who he is, and he remains as the one who will be raised. And so the same is true for us. And so that's, you know, that's an important way of thinking, too. I've been thinking on that a little bit in, in, two, uh, in 2020. Um, this is just my own anecdotal uh, perspective. I see... I see more pain and more suffering and more sorrow and more, in, just in terms of sheer volume, than, I, than I've seen, I think, in the rest of my ministry combined. And, and I see also, like, just, just people going through one thing after another, after another, after another, after two, just where you go, really? Really? Um, so, you know, anecdotally, am I saying that this is some sort of, you know, sign that we're in the final end times? No. But I'm just saying anecdotally, experientially, sometimes we can perceive these things. And, and again, Revelation is teaching us to perceive these things through these lenses so that we can have the right attitude about it. You know, is God, is God a, does, is his hand upon the church? Is he, is he crushing Christian people in, you know, in specific? And the answer we have to have is, is no. I mean, judgment may begin with the household of the Lord, so there's that aspect to be sure. But there's also this aspect, that he disciplines those whom he loves, and he is going to, I mean, again, part of that discipline is he's allowing us to see that all our stuff can perish, we can perish, peace on earth can perish, so what? So what? It doesn't affect our relationship with him. It doesn't affect who we are. We simply remember that this is Good Friday and we're on our way to Easter. We're on our way to the resurrection. We're on our way to the new heavens and the new earth. Increasingly, then, the call of life not be becomes not like establishing yourself on earth with worldly kinds of success, but increasingly, just simply living in peace and quiet, like the apostle says, to the best of your ability, and living and acting in faithfulness to God. Right? So I think for so, long, for so long in the church, for so long in our lives as Christians, we, we've sought for like, well, what's going to work? Let's do that. What's going to really grow the church? Let's do that. Um, what's, what's going to make our lives better? Let's do that. And, and then everything has been sort of uh, 
weighed on these utilitarian scales. Well, what happens when all of that falls apart? What happens when nothing works? You know? And I think there's this beautiful, joyful thing where, where in that, in that crucible is revealed to us, it was never about what works. God could make whatever he wants happen. It's about being faithful to the one who has been so faithful to us. It's about realizing the God who is love in Christ Jesus and simply loving him back. It's, it's not about doing that perfectly. It's not about measuring up. It's not about, hey, God, here's my, uh, here's my resume. It is, rather, about simply learning to be sons and daughters of God. So I think, I think in this day and age of futility in the West for Christianity and for the church, there are some huge, huge blessings, huge blessings to be gained. Well, anyway, I, I'm sorry I digress. Uh, here we are with the second angel. Um, you know, you may, you may not want to go here with me, that's fine. Uh, but you have the sores that afflict the body, and you have the water that turns into blood. And so if you will, you have again a sort of deep, rich, meditative like call to think on the sacraments because you have, you have the wholeness of the body found in Christ and the blood that we can drink that cleanses us of all our sins, the blood that does give us life and not death. So anyway, I, I simply submit that for your consideration. The third angel, verse 4, poured out his bowl into the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. It's just glorious. It's just glorious. So this is, this is the beginning of the... I mean, as our... Where we left off last week, the, back in chapter 14, verse 20, the wine press trodden out and blood flowing from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle. That's a lot of blood. And here, they who shed blood are given blood to drink, and the angels saying this is completely just, right, and salutary. And he's praising God on account of that. You can see that this is the answer to the prayer of the martyrs. And this is, by the way, the setting of all things right, the beginning of all things being set right. So for so long, for so long, God's people have lamented. You probably have too. Why do the wicked prosper? Why do the wicked prosper? And here in an image, we see that the wicked don't prosper. The, the, the scales have not been balanced. It's very much like Jesus' parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Having both died, you would say, well, God favors the, the wicked. Lazarus was wicked. He lived, enjoyed everything. Or, excuse me, the rich man was, uh, God, you'd say, God favors the wicked rich man. He had everything he wanted. He ate and drank. He didn't give a rip about anyone else. He died. And God didn't care at all about Lazarus. He sat there. The dogs came up and were licking his wounds. He couldn't get them away. Miserable estate wishing he could have crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. So at, at, as they both die, where's God's justice? 
God is quite evidently unjust. But then what Jesus reveals to us in that parable is the scales aren't yet balanced, are they? Yeah. So, so we, don't get to, we don't get to sit in judgment of God. That's, that's a lot of the arrogance of the atheists and the problem of evil and all of this other stuff. Is It's working with half the equation. In many respects, I think we could frankly just agree with the atheists and all their gotcha arguments. We could, we could concede very many of them and just say, yeah, 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 yeah. But we're just looking at one, of the, one half of the equation. <laughs> we're looking at the first half of the football game. We're not looking at the other half. We're not looking at the other side of the equation. We're not looking at when all the dust has settled. Then you talk to me about the problem of evil. Then you talk to me about God, whether God is just and good and all-powerful and whether he's done anything about it, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, all this stupid stuff you see on the Internet, right? Uh, so that's, that, is, that is what we ought to learn then from this third angel, is that God is going to set everything right. And part of that is the wicked are going to be brought to nothing. God's judgment is going to be upon them. While the righteous, the saints of God, cleansed by his blood, are going to be gathered around, gathered around the throne, singing and rejoicing. All right, so we see in these first three plagues, um, plagues that were that are very closely related to the plagues of the Exodus. Verse 7. This is very strange. And I heard the altar saying. Now, it might be a kind of, uh, what do they call it? I think metonymy. Do I have that right? Did I pronounce it right? I'm looking at Liz, our literary. What is, how, do, how do you pronounce it? Yeah, 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 the part for the whole, where we say, you know, we do this all the time if you watch the news. It's like, well, the White House said blah, 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 blah. And nobody thinks, okay, well, it's the White House that actually talked, you know. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so same probably here with the altar. It's probably not actually the altar that grows a mouth and is like, um, it's, probably, it's probably the one who's presiding at the altar. It's probably, um, it's probably Christ, but could be in the, yeah, who knows? There's, there's different, there's alternatives that it could be. It could be that eighth angel that we saw in the second cycle of seven. Anyway, be that as it may, there's a voice. Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So this is, this is um, really spelling out what Paul says, that he is going to be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Perfectly just and perfectly merciful. All right, the fourth angel, verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. And it was allowed to give people skin cancer. Well, to scorch people with fire. So every time you put on your, uh, your sunscreen, you can remember the fourth angel. He poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. So that's really rather astonishing, but we even, you know, in part see that around us. With something like the coronavirus. So has this, has this humbled people to the point where they're all seeking God, where we can't keep them out of the churches? Has this changed our leaders' hearts and minds to now they're now not they've thoroughly repented from 
from calling Christ non-essential, and now they say he's most essential at all, and they're commanding us all to go to church once a week, forbidding us to work on Sundays so that we don't worship ma'am and, you know, one day out of the week, but worship the Lord. Is that what's happening? No. It's the opposite, isn't it? It's the opposite. That's the, so that's the strange thing about these plagues. It's not so strange, I guess, because that's the nature of unbelief is, is hatred for God. Hatred for God. So that God's the only one that can save them. They acknowledge this is coming from God. Well, if it's coming from God, could God take it away? Yeah. Do they ask God to take it away? No. They curse God. <laughs> they curse the name of God for having power over these plagues and doing nothing. They did not repent and give him glory. All right. So, lest we were growing any sympathy, uh, we ought not. And that, too, is probably a rather controversial message, depending on where you've spent your years as a Christian. Um, so, much of, so much of 20th and 21st century Christianity has been really thoroughly tainted into this idea like God's kind of this giant teddy bear in the sky and he's nice and wouldn't actually ever be wrathful to anyone. And Revelation's like really, really good medicine against that. Because what, what Revelation shows us is that there is a, a healthy and biblical way to rejoice in the justice of God. And to do so with, without hypocrisy, without kind of this gotcha theology that drives me up a wall in Lutheranism where it's kind of like, well, do you think they deserve fire and brimstone? Yeah, well, then you're a Pharisee and you... Okay, well, if I'm a Pharisee, then so is the angel because the angel says that they deserved it. So, you know, again, I, revelation is medicine for the soul. All right, well, there's the fourth angel. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. <laughs> he gets a direct shot, doesn't he? <laughs> Love it. And its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. So we don't, we don't know what this is. We don't know what this is. But um, we do know that the very, the very throne, the source of worship of this, of this beast is, is afflicted by God and is plunged into darkness. I mean, who knows what this ultimately means. If you think, if you think in very strict Lutheran terms, and you think in terms of uh, what, what the, the lenses that this verse gives us today, I think you'd have to look at Rome. You'd have to look at Roman Catholicism. You'd have to look at the present pope and the popes before him as, uh, as sources of lawlessness. The most grievous and egregious sins you can imagine bearing in their bodies the judgment of God, afflicting children, and that this is struck, struck with utter judgment and utter darkness so that those who want to remain part of this have, have nothing to do but gnaw their tongues in anguish. Uh, it's, it's, worth, it's worth considering. It's worth considering because, and, and I say that because of the fluidity of, we'll hit this next week, but the fluidity of the second beast, the beast that comes from the earth, 
that image, along with the image of the false prophet, the Antichrist, and then um, to some extent, too, Babylon, the, or the one who rides upon the, the beast. We'll take a look at all of this, and I'll let, I'll let Brighton do a lot of the teaching next week when we tie those themes together. But what we see is that there's a kind of anti-trinity in the dragon and the two beasts. There's an anti-Christ in that beast that looks like a, uh, a lamb but speaks like a dragon. There's a kind of anti-church, a contrast between the woman of Revelation 12 and the harlot that rides upon the beast. And there's, a, there's an anti-Jerusalem or an anti-city of God that is Babylon. There are anti-sacraments, as we have seen, being marked with the beast, being drunk with sexual immorality. So what John is doing is a very thorough job of showing us how the beast works in a precisely anti-Christian way. That permeates, I would argue that that permeates all denominations, it permeates the entire world. But one of the places in our day and age that you can like pinpoint it and really point out some of the specific contours is in the Roman papacy. All right, uh, verse 12, the sixth angel. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Then we have this interjection, which I love. I love this so much because, because the, way it, the way it reads it's like Jesus interrupts this. You can see that it's red letters in your Bible. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And then John goes on with the revelation without missing a beat. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Isn't that great? I love it. I love it, I love it, I love it. So, you're seeing, this, you're seeing this image and all of a sudden Jesus is like, breaks in. Like he can't, he can't handle not interjecting and not, not speaking directly to his people, to his Christians. Behold, I am coming like a thief. So that means what? Be always prepared. Yeah. You have these different motifs like stay awake. Be prepared. Set your alarm. <laughs> Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on. You might take your garments off to go to bed. And then there's that play on nakedness, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, the nakedness and shame. So keep clothed. What's that garment? Clothed in the garment of Christ's righteousness. That's baptism. So stay awake. Keep your garments on. Remember you're a Christian. Remember who you are. Don't let all of this doom and gloom get to you. I am coming like a thief. 
And of course, that for us as Christians is great rejoicing. I mean, great joy. Okay, so what we see, what we see with this sixth angel is not at all unlike what we saw in the seven trumpet angels. Remember those angels dealing with, um, we should flip back real quick. Remember those angels that when they blew, it was the, uh, the fifth and sixth angels. When they blew their trumpets, we're back in chapter 9. Um, when, they, when they blew their angels, you have this imagery of these armies of darkness coming forth. You remember the locust army from the fifth angel? From the fifth trumpet? And then, yeah, you remember them, they've got like... Locusts were like horses prepared for battle, chapter 9, verse 7 and following. Okay, so, so you've, got this, you've got this demonic army motif. Well, you've got the same thing in, cha- in, in chapter 9, verse 13. The, the sixth angel blew his trumpet. And then again, um, look, look at the parallels here. So sixth angel blowing his trumpet. Um, what we're reading is the sixth angel pouring out his bowl. And look at the similarities. So verse 13, the sixth angel blew his trumpet and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar. Didn't we just hear the altar speak? Right? There's the parallel. Um, Saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Didn't we just see the river Euphrates? Yeah. And then, so the four angels who had prepared for the hour, the day, the month, the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Uh, The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. So again, military. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision, those who rode on them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed, etc. Okay, so what, in other words, in other words, what, what we're seeing is the same thing, just from a different picture with some different emphases. But we're seeing that at, in the very end, there is an increased emphasis on this battle motif. The dragon and the beast and all their evil horde are going to make their last stand on earth. Now, we've seen them make their last stand somewhere else, haven't we? In heaven. They made their last stand. The dragon and all the angels with him, the forces of darkness in heaven, made their last stand, and it didn't go well for them. Michael and the other angels tossed them out. So what's happening as the time grows short here? Same thing. They're making their last stand. And so this last, this last plague is, you know, it's, it's kind of complex imagery. Well, I mean, not the last one, but the sixth one, the last one we looked at. It's complex imagery, but it's the same kind of thing. Why is the Euphrates dried up? Well, in one sense, it's the source of life and the cradle of civilization, and you find it in Genesis. But in another sense, when it's dried up, that means the kings from the east, which if you're an Israelite, that's where, they come, that's where all the conquerors come from. That's where the Assyrians came that took out the ten tribes. That's where the Babylonians came that took out the two. This is always where God's enemies come from. So this, then, is what happens. The angel drops his bowl. It evaporates the water. The way is open for military conquest. And then what comes uh, is demonic in origin. Here, out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast, it's gross and wonderful and intriguing. And out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. 
So what did we see all the way back in the sixth trump or the fifth trumpet and sixth trumpet that the mouths is where the damage is frequently done? We saw back in Revelation 12, the dragon is pursuing the woman, trying to flood her out with a flood from his mouth. And here we see the same thing. Now we see the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Previously, we had seen the dragon, the beast, and the beast. And so now you see that the beast from the earth has morphed into the false prophet, which makes perfect sense because the beast from the earth is religious Tyranny, religion and persecution of the woman and her offspring. So now he morphs into the false prophet, which is going to be, again, analogous to the Antichrist. Out of their mouth then come these, their own plagues. Of course, frogs were a plague in Egypt, and so now here that's transfigured into something different, a, a, a plague of uh, frogs from the mouth of this, of this anti-trinity. And then we're told in verse 14, they are demonic spirits performing signs. Jesus warns us about that very thing, not to be deceived by signs and wonders. Whether those are scientific or religious or technological, don't be deceived. And then they go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of the Almighty. That is, when God comes, when Christ comes. And they're getting ready. So the principalities and powers of darkness are getting ready. And the call for us as Christians is we ought to get ready too, in an altogether different way. But the forces of evil around us are getting ready. They're trying to unify us here on earth under their evil sway so that when the Lamb comes, they're going to make their last stand on earth. They're going to try to stop Christ. They're going to try to stop the saints and angels and everybody flooding in. They're going to try to stop them. And that's the battle motif. Now, in a sense, that battle is already kind of going on, or at least the foreshadowing of that battle, the pre-battle. That's why Paul tells us to take up the full armor of God, because we're in that pre-battle stage. Plus, we want to be ready when he comes and the war is is on. We want to be on the right side and we want to be ready to battle. Now, what this is and and how this works out, we don't have any idea, but this is the motif that is given to us. This This is the revelation that is given to us here in the sixth Uh, bowl that is poured out by the sixth angel. All right, I am sorry I didn't leave a lot of time for uh, questions or comments. Um, We'll simply pick up here next week. If you have any questions, write them down. We can entertain your questions right off the bat next week. Otherwise, we will go into the seventh and final bowl and then some of the concluding uh, visions related to uh, the great prostitute and the beast. The Lord be with you. you.